Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Okay, a little word about the podcast this week, because um, it's probably noticeable that there are some that I, I sound a little weird in a few places. Um, I really did my best, but what happened was the podcast recording I did with Dr. Jonas Kaplan a few weeks ago um, was really bad on my end. The microphone on my end just was awful. The Zoom screwed it up, and, and, I, and I didn't want to lose the podcast. And because uh, it was so awesome. <laughs> I mean, what Dr. Jonas was saying was so cool and the interactions we were having were so good and we were getting into some pretty deep stuff about Scientology and Hubbard's ideas about memory and stuff. And I was explaining that to the doctor, the neuroscientist, and I didn't want to lose that and I didn't want to have to bother him to do it again. So I re-recorded my end of it. And um, that took a lot of time and a lot of work. And I didn't do it perfectly. I'm not a great actor. Um, you know, I can sit here and talk, but I, I don't act. And you can see that in, the, in the, the course of the podcast, I suppose. But I really did try my best to do it and get it back together so that it's a coherent whole podcast where all the words we're saying are all the things we said in our original. I didn't alter it or change it up or or anything like that. So um, anyway, that's uh, the podcast this week. So I hope you guys will give that a listen and sort of just kind of put up with my um, vocal intonation oddities. Uh, the words I'm saying are the ones that really count. And uh, anyway, I have never tried to do that before. I don't think I'm going to try to do it again. It was very time intensive, but I thought the information was important enough to get out there for you guys. And I really look forward to having um, Dr. Kaplan back on the show to talk more about the brain and the various mechanisms of it. So that's my long spiel about the podcast this week. Um, also, I have not plugged in a very long time my critical merchandise. Uh, there's a link below in the description to my videos that will take you to my Spreadshirt site where I have put together some various, uh, you know, original and not so original um, graphics and ideas and put them up on merch so you can get hats, mugs, jackets, sweaters, you know, whatever you want. Uh, it's all there. And uh, and it's another way to support the channel, another way to support what I'm doing and also get some critical thinking messages out there, you know. So uh, anyway, I hope you'll check that out. And with those plugs out of the way, Boy, man, a real up and down week this week. Times are really pretty wild. But let's go ahead and get on with your questions because uh, we got some pretty good ones this week. Cyprian Ivanov, how does Scientology distinguish between Hubbard's policies that seem to have been directed to a particular problem in time or place, like splitting AOLA, and those which seem to be part of a broader body of reasoning, like the lower conditions? There seems to have been uneven changes in policies and in their interpretation over time, but no visible methodology of interpretation other than Miscavige's word. Hey, thanks for the question, Cyprian. So let me break this down a little bit because um, L. Ron Hubbard sort of organically grew this organization called the Church of Scientology over a course of decades. And in doing so, he ran the organization through various written policies and issues. And these are broken down into issue types, different kinds of issues depending for different areas of Scientology or 
covering different topics or subjects. And there were probably, I mean, I've never done a full count, but probably something on the, on the order of about, you know, 30 or 40 different issue types. And by issue type, I mean Hubbard would mimeograph. He would have copied off um, the issues, that you know, a piece of paper with the, with the writing on it. And it was different colored ink on different colored papers that would distinguish one issue type from another. So you could see visually right off that if it was red ink on white paper, that was a Hubbard Communications Office bulletin. And that had to do with Scientology methods and techniques and technology and how you go about helping one other individual or doing auditing or the, you know, the administration of auditing and that kind of thing. Those were bulletins. Then you had policy letters, which were green ink on white paper. Those were policies for the entire organization. And prior to the Sea Org being around, this was the the uh, policy letters were um, the only real you know issues on how organizations should be put together and stuff. Actually, I shouldn't say they were the only type, but they were the most important type. They were the embraceive policy for how all Scientology organizations should operate. That's that's what I meant by that. So then you had other issue types come up over the years that Hubbard would use or invent in order to solve certain problems or deal with certain types of situations. For example, you have a few different kinds of executive directives, and these are only good for a year. So um, those could be black ink on blue paper or blue ink on white paper. There were different kinds of executive directives, but generally speaking, they were only they were only supposed to last in terms of order or in terms of uh, how you know how how long they have authority for a year. Solve a particular problem, deal with a particular organization, deal with a particular situation. But all of these issues were broad. They were meant for, you know, generally speaking, they were meant for all organizations. You wouldn't find a policy letter only for Keokuk or a bulletin only for Joe Auditor. It was for all auditors or all organizations. And, um, then the Sea Org came around and you had a whole bunch of new issue types come into play. Most uh, importantly, the flag orders or the FOs. And those are the senior issue type within the Sea Org. Uh, similar to Scientology policy letters for the regular Scientology organizations, flag orders exist for the Sea Org. So you'll never really see too many flag orders getting down to the local city level churches. They don't have any need for them. Most of the flag orders are confidential because they're for the Sea Org only. Um, you know, occasionally you'll get quotes from them or you'll see flag orders filter down. But, but uh, you know, the volumes of them and the, 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 the packs of flag orders are really restricted to Sea Org bases. You also have other Sea Org specific issues like Central Bureau orders, CBOs, or AIDS orders, which were uh, issues written by L. Ron Hubbard's AIDS. But they were also sometimes written by L. Ron Hubbard, too. And those would mostly contain evaluations of orgs. So I obviously, from memory, can't sit here and do a full breakdown on all the different issue types. But I think you get the idea that there was a lot of different kinds of uh, Hubbard directives and policy letters and issues. And the way Scientologists are told to deal with this is there is a policy letter that was written, um, which all the staff read, which very specifically states that Hubbard communications office bulletins 
And Hubbard Communications Office policy letters are the senior of all the things that exist in Scientology. Those are the senior orders. If there is ever a conflict between a bulletin or a policy letter and some other issue type, the bulletin or the policy letter is what takes precedence. Now, if you have a specific, uh, let's say you had an evaluation done on an organization and there was this AIDS order, this AO that was written that laid out the evaluation. Here's the situation with this org. Here's what we're going to do about it. Here are the sequence of steps to handle it. If one of those, po- if one of those targets listed in the uh, AIDS order were to violate a policy letter, then it wouldn't be a good AIDS order. I mean, that's no good, right? You can't have that usurping what a policy letter says. Um, If there is no conflict, then it's really a matter of local judgment as to whether you're going to apply that issue in coordination with the policies and bulletins that you have or whether you um, need to make a, you know, judgment call there. Hubbard said that when you apply policies, there was a a policy letter that he wrote, I think, called organization, the design of the organization, or, or, and there was also another one called seniority of issues. And I think between these various policies, he basically laid out this principle that you always interpret policy in the direction of expanding things, of expanding Scientology, of making it grow. So if there was going to be a conflict or there was going to be a question about, well, should we send out a hundred letters, or should we be sending out, you know, does this thing seem to imply maybe we should be sending a thousand letters? You'd probably go in the direction of the thousand letters versus the hundred because you are wanting more work, more expansion, more people coming in. But that, you know, that can be a little bit of a tricky thing. You don't always, you know, know where where the future lies with this stuff, but that's the direction you're trying to go in. Um, Local, you know, Hubbard would write various things for Sea Org bases that were specific to that Sea Org base. You wouldn't then take that and apply it to another Sea Org base all the time. (laughs) But somebody like, um, if somebody were to do that and it were to result in, you know, in things improving and things getting better then the guy would probably get a pat on the back, right? He'd probably, hey, that's a, you know, good job on that. Good job on showing that initiative. But if it pissed somebody off, if it cut across a senior, uh, you know, uh, policy or another, um, you know, another senior official's wishes or desires, then you might end up in the stew. You might end up in trouble. And if Miscavige doesn't like what you're doing, regardless of whether this, of statistics going up or down, um, he, I mean, he, you know, he, that's not how he, that's not how he goes about making his decisions. So if he's pissed at you or he doesn't like what you've done, it doesn't matter what Hubbard wrote in his policies. Somehow, some way, they're going to reinterpret it so you're in trouble. <laughs> so that's kind of how it goes. And I, you know, I, I sort of laugh it off, but people have gotten into some real serious trouble, RPF'd, et cetera, kicked, even kicked out of Scientology over this kind of thing. Um, and and it often interpretation, I'll comment also, uh, often it is necessary because there were vast areas where Hubbard didn't really write any policy about what to do here in this circumstance. Or 
he wrote some policy, but it doesn't really seem to fit anymore. Like, um, like letter writing. I mean, how do you, you know, you, it, people don't really dig on handwritten letters anymore from people. So why are you still writing handwritten letters to people? Well, Hubbard says to, but it's kind of, it, it actually kind of creates worse public relations imaging for Scientology. They get these childlike, you know, scribbled notes from Scientology staff members being sent out to, to the public saying, hey, you bought Dianetics 10 years ago. Why don't you come in? You know, I mean, this is just that people look at that and think Scientology is crazy, but they keep doing it because the policy says to, you know, so you get, um, you get kind of anachronistic kind of behavior coming out of Scientology because of that, or just stupid behavior, but people do it anyway. So, you know, so the interpretation of this stuff is really, it, 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 I wish there were hard and fast rules for this. And I've tried to give you a couple of the, of the rules that Scientologists have in their heads to try to think with how they should apply, con, you know, conflicting policies or figure out policy for areas where there is none. You want to expand Scientology, you want to bring more people in, and you want things to go in that direction. And that's, if there's any hard and fast rule, that would be it. But it's, you know, sometimes uh, you can be doing that and still get hit, basically, is my point, because somebody just doesn't like what you're doing or doesn't like your attitude about it. Or Miscavige has some other plan and he doesn't want that being done right now because he wants something else being done. So that's kind of how that breaks down. I hope that um, gives some for more, you know, sort of informative as to how the, the breakdown of that stuff works. It's, it's, it's pretty arbitrary but those are the rules. Marina Zucker. Hi, Chris. I'm curious about knowledge reports. Are they more of a quick, informal note you scribble down, or is there a standardized form? How long are they usually? Do you get into great detail? Do people ever make them up, or is there an effort made to verify them? Is it seen as a good thing if you write a lot of them, or does that implicate that you're surrounding yourself with too many bad people? How is a person confronted when they get a knowledge report written on them? Is the writer involved in any way? Do they get feedback of what has been done? And detached insight. Reading other people's posts and comments, I'm a bit confused about the role of Scientology's global and continental management when it comes to ethics, reports, and investigations. Could you please tell us more about how this branch of Scientology functions? I remember people mentioning that Marty Rathman as Inspector General of RTC was in some way responsible for supervising ethics globally. Is that true? All right, let's talk knowledge reports. Let's really get into the down and dirty details of this. Um, Scientology is a snitching culture. So therefore, every member is encouraged to report outnesses or, you know, errors, things they're seeing, rule violations mainly, on the part of other Scientologists. And this... Um, is just kind of, you know, embedded in the culture of Scientology. It's all based on a policy letter that Hubbard wrote called Knowledge Reports. And in the mid-60s, he came up with a bunch of different reports that you could write, a bunch of different kinds of reports, a damage report. You know, these were called staff member reports. Originally, it was for the staff. 
and they were the ones who were writing these reports, inner, you know, inner organizational reports that would be distributed throughout the communication system of the organization, and were meant to deal with um, rule violations, policy violations, things like that. If you had knowledge, the idea with a, um, and you had about, I don't know, 20 different kinds of reports, because you had you didn't just have a knowledge report. You had a um, a breakage report, you know, or a damage report. You had, you know, a commendation could be a kind of report. But a knowledge report was if you had knowledge of something that was wrong. And the format for this was you would it, the the way dispatches or reports are written in Scientology is you write the who it's going to at the top, and then your name and post title or your job title right below that. And you put a little arrow directed to the person it's going to, and then you would use carbon paper or print multiple copies, uh, and you would CC, carbon copy, other people who needed to know the information. And sometimes Scientologists get a little enthusiastic about how many people they think need to know things. I mean, there are, you know, to the point that probably, you know, 50, 60, 70 percent, I don't know, of the reports I saw over the years um, were CC'd to RTC, the Religious Technology Center, or CC'd to, you know, very senior people. Sometimes people would CC David Miscavige directly and um, or the local RTC representatives on very, very small, no big deal kind of issues. You know, Joe Schmo was late to course, and I, you know, and he said he had to stop and get a bagel on the way because he was hungry. CC David Miscavige, right? I mean, that's a little bit ridiculous, but you see Scientologists do that sometimes. Um, they can, you know, they, they get a little wild about it. Um, you ask a lot of questions here as far as how long are they usually? Depends. I've seen knowledge reports as short as one sentence, and I have seen them as long as 100 pages. Uh, really. Um, so sometimes knowledge reports can go into a great deal of chronology and depth of detail about the situations they're reporting on. Other times it can just be, you know, Joe Schmo was late to class, right? Um, do you get into a great deal? Yeah. Does um, Do people ever make them up? Yeah, all the time. I mean, these are reports that are based on people's observations. And you know from watching my channel, uh, for any length of time, that people's observations basically suck, and uh, they do not perceive what they think they're perceiving. They perceive what they want to perceive, and that that's a problem for people, but it's how it works. So people write reports from their perspective, and sometimes they're valid and objectively true, and sometimes they're not. They're just a bunch of biased nonsense. I think he blah, 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 right? Well, nobody really should care what you think, but you know, if, if what you if you're a senior person or a VIP or an important person, then what you think does matter in the world of Scientology. And if you write reports against other people and that are just opinion based, they can still get in all kinds of trouble. Um, as far as efforts made to verify them, what happens is the reports go to the ethics section of the local organization and the ethics officer's job um, the, the ethics officers of local, of, of any Scientology organization are posted in Department 3. And Department 3 is called the Department of Inspections and Reports. So they inspect, they report. They get reports, they do inspections. 
the INR, the, the INR area or section. This is how this is referred to. And so the ethics officer's job is to receive these reports from all over the organization. And Hubbard's theory on this was not, let's get everybody fighting each other or let's get everybody reporting on each other. I mean, ultimately, that's what happens, of course. But what the intention was, or the idea was, that the ethics officers would go around and visually inspect the organization every day, but they would also be receiving these reports. And the reports would pile up on individuals who were chronically screwing up or who were really messing up the organization. And the idea or the theory of this is that the ethics officer might get a report and it might have some really alarming information in it. And how they're supposed to deal with this is they're supposed to then go look up that staff member's statistics. They're supposed to go to the area of the organization where all the graphs are posted. It's called the Org Information Center, or the OIC. Uh, it's a military term from CIC, Command Information Center. And um, the graphs for all of the different parts of the organization are all posted there, and they're kept up to date every week. So the ethics officer could take this report on Joe Schmo, and let's say it's, it says that he was out drunk all night partying and setting a bad example for Scientology and how dare he and, you know, sign much love, nosy misses, right? So uh, the ethics officer takes this report, goes and looks at Joe Schmo's statistics, and if they are going up, he leaves them alone. Hey, the guy's producing. He's doing his job. He has what's called ethics protection. If his statistics are going down, if last week he was down stat, he didn't produce as much this last week as he did the week before, or generally speaking over time, the statistics are going down, now we have what's called a bad indicator. This guy's off getting drunk after post. His stats suck. This guy's now in trouble. And the ethics officer would then wrangle him in, put him on an e-meter, start asking him sharp and pointed questions about what he's been up to, what's up with this report of him going out getting drunk. And maybe there are other reports about Joe Schmoe slacking off, screwing off, messing up, and those are also going to get taken up, and Joe might end up getting a whole sec check because of that kind of investigation. It's up to the ethics officer as to what to do about it. He's the one who decides whether discipline is necessary or whether the guy should just get a pass based on how well he's doing his job. Now, when you have an arbitrary ethics system like that, where it is, it is up to an individual as to what he's going to do with somebody, then you have individual decision points which will violate those policies of up and down statistics. Hubbard says in his policy letters that if your statistics are going up, you can get away with murder. But that is not true. You will get in trouble all the time for having your statistics going up if you piss off the wrong people at the wrong time. And that's how I got to the RPF, for example. And that's how lots and lots of Sea Org members and Scientology staff and public get in trouble. Um, obviously, this filtered down to the public level where public started writing reports, not just staff members. And they write reports on each other. They write reports on the org. They send them up and down and this kind of thing. And they all get filed in ethics files that are kept on every single individual in Scientology. Every 
individual has a file, it's called an ethics file, and every report that gets written on you and sent to ethics is filed in there. You don't have access to it. You can go in and request to see what's in your ethics file, but an ethics officer has to be there with you. And um, you don't necessarily always get CC'd on reports that are written on you. There is a specific kind of report that, that, scient- that cowardly Scientologists who don't want to inform other people that they are reporting on them they will write this specific kind of report that is not a knowledge report. It's called a things that shouldn't be report. And you just title it, things that shouldn't be. Joe Schmo eating candy in the course room or something, right? And rah, 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 I saw Joe eating in the course room and I thought that was off the rails. And, you know, maybe it's lunchtime or something. No big deal, right? But here's this things that shouldn't be report. And this is a way of, an, of not anonymously, you still have to sign your name to it, but it goes to ethics and you don't have to send a copy to the person that you wrote the report on. And this is one way that the snitching culture has really developed in Scientology because you're encouraged to write a things that shouldn't be report if you don't want to write a knowledge report and deal with all the repercussions and backlash of the person um, who now knows that you have written this report on them. Also, the other thing that happens is people will write knowledge reports as they're supposed to, but they won't bother to do the CCs. They might even write the CCs on the report of who should be CC'd, including the original person who's being reported on, but then they won't send them a copy. And that happens all the time, too. I probably had, oh gosh, I don't know, I had tens tens of reports over the years written on me that I never saw until I got saw my ethics file, right, and could see, and could see some of the reports. Um, you know, sometimes when you get confronted on this stuff by the ethics officer, it's the first time you're ever seeing or hearing anything about it. You're like, what? I didn't do that. You know, and, and that's, of course, why the ethics officer is sitting there confronting you on it, is to sort of deal with and, and hash out what the truth of the matter is. So, um, so that's kind of how it works. And if, by the way, a person is, um, is written up, if a knowledge report is written, and the person who's being written up says, well, this is false, this is wrong, that person can then write a request for withdrawal. And that goes back to the person where they explain, hey, man, it's late. It was lunchtime. I was eating lunch in the course room because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's lunchtime and I'm the supervisor and I couldn't leave. Could you please withdraw this report? It was not an ethics violation for me to do this, and it's really not okay. You wrote me up for that. Please, you know, respectfully, please withdraw this report. And if you, um, you know, don't manage to piss the person who wrote the report off, uh, you know, uh, if you don't piss them off in the process, then maybe they'll withdraw the report, but more often than not, they won't. And that could end up resulting in um, an ethics review where you then request the ethics officer pull everybody in and sort it out independently, so, you know, independently. So that can sometimes be done as a request for withdrawal. Um, also, what also happens is you can get into KR wars where I write you up and then you write me up and then I write you up and then you write me up and we just find things to write up on each other because we're just pissed at each other. This goes on all the time in Scientology. Oh my God, I got in so many KR wars because I really would get pissed when people would write stuff up on me, especially if I didn't think I had done anything wrong or if I thought, 
you know, my statistics were going up or whatever, but here I have to deal with this stupid report. And you know, and it just kind of grinds on you because you, you know you got to file and these things are just accumulating and you get a bit paranoid because you don't know when the hammer's going to fall. Sometimes they will just wait for your statistics to go down and then they'll pounce, right? So your stats are up, you can get away with murder and you're accumulating reports and then the ethics officer is just like, all right, all right, buddy, you just keep going. And as soon as your stats go down one week, boom, and you come to the ethics officer, bop, 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 right? And you're scrubbing dishes until three in the morning. So, so that's the kind of, um, that's sort of some notes and ideas and thoughts about the KR system and how the whole thing breaks down and works. Now, Detached Insight also asked about the bigger picture here as far as the organizations go. So every single Scientology organization has its own Department 3. It has its own ethics officers. So I could go to the Church of Scientology here in Denver, and there is a Department 3 there with an ethics officer. Whether that person is on the job or not, somebody's holding that function if it's not the ethics officer, it'll be the director of the department. And if it's not that person, it'll be the head of the division. And if it's not that person, it'll be the, you know, the head of the whole organization that has the job. But somebody's got the job of doing that function. And um, and there is a sort of a network of this uh, in Scientology where you have um, I, I did a whole organization. I did a whole video breaking down the organizational hierarchy of Scientology, but every one of these organizations has its own ethics section. And then you asked about Marty Rathbun. So his job here, you have at the very top of this whole hierarchy, you have the Religious Technology Center, and that's the organization that is run by David Miscavige personally. And Marty Rathbun was the Inspector General for Ethics. That was his job title. And um, that job was to oversee the administration of ethics across all of Scientology and make sure it was being done according to Hubbard's policies and directives. That was Marty Rathman's job. In, in the ink, that was his job. That wasn't his real job. His real job was to be David Miscavige's enforcer. And, uh, of course, that was the perfect job with which to do that. So that was um, how he was, you know, and, and from that position, he could and did, Marty did, issue various um, writings, issues of his own about how to do ethics, how ethics should be done, how ethics interviews should be done on and off the meter, this kind of thing. So there was there was some attempt on his part to do his job um, as written, as well as being Miscavige's enforcer. So that's kind of how that worked. And if you're really curious about the whole breakdown of, of the various international and, and local organizations and how they all break down, then watch my video called Scientology's Organizational Madness, because that's, that's, the, that's the real breakdown on that. Hey, everyone. I wanted to take this opportunity to talk to you about a service that I am endorsing and that I truly, truly believe in. And that service is called BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, BetterHelp. And they are av available through BetterHelp.com. And this is a service that connects you 
with a licensed professional counselor online so you can get help with depression, anxiety, stress, or just somebody to talk to in this very, basically, very troubled times that we're living in right now. It is not easy to get out there in the big wide world right now. It is not easy to get out and see therapists or counselors. It is not easy to find counselors or therapists who can help you. And this is what BetterHelp was designed to assist you with. The simplicity of this is you go to the site, you sign up, actually you use the link <laughs> that I have provided below, uh, which is betterhelp.com slash Chris Shelton, and you get signed up. And this can be for as little as $40 a week, and they actually even have uh, financial aid available. You enter some information, fill out a questionnaire about yourself, and you get hooked up with a counselor that will help you out. And this can be via text, via voice, or via a video, okay? Any one of those. It's up to you and your comfort level. And if the therapist that you get connected with isn't doing the job that you feel you need, you can ask for and get a different counselor. So there are a lot of options for you in this, and it is really something that I think a lot of my viewers should be taking advantage of. I have talked often about the need for or the help that you can get through professional counseling. Sometimes you need somebody who really does know what they're doing and not just a friend or family member to listen. And that's why this service is something that I am happy to put out there for you guys. So again, use the link below, betterhelp.com slash Chris Shelton. That is in the description to this video. And I hope that you um, can get the help that you might need from this service. Let me know how it goes. Tom Taylor, I briefly worked as a private investigator in my youth so I can attest to shady practices being common, but I wonder what makes the PIs employed by Scientology so willing to engage in aggressive harassment of former members. Are they members of Scientology, or are they just paid obscenely well? Or does the church just have a knack for finding PIs without a moral compass? Thanks for the question, Tom. And the answer to is all of the above. Scientology does employ private investigators who are, or Scientologists in the role of a private investigator, enforcer, bouncer, etc. Security. Uh, I've seen this, um, and uh, but more often than not, since the bust of the Guardian's office all the way back in the eighties. They just hire outside guys, and they are—they do have a pretty much unlimited budget for legal, so they are willing to pay top dollar for the best of the best of private security, lawyers, and private investigators. And by the best of the best, I mean those who are willing to do the dirty work, the scummy, bottom-dwelling, awful stuff. And there are, unfortunately, tons of people out there who are more than willing to take that paycheck and do the very worst to other human beings because, hey, man, I got to make a living. And that's their attitude. And I find such people to be the most despicable scum of the universe. But that's doesn't, doesn't, they, they just laugh in my face at, at that idea because they're laughing all the way to the bank. And it's pretty sad, but it is true. And uh, so in the world of 
private investigation, especially you have ex-cops and ex-military who now get to engage in their own little clandestine covert operations on a daily basis, and they get off on it. You know, I mean, uh, people have different motivations and different ideas. It's all it's not all just money. But um, but when you are dealing with the scum of, you know, humanity, then that's the, then the kind of motivations you're dealing with are, you know, to hurt people, to um, embarrass people, to make people, you know, to ruin people utterly. You know, Hubbard wasn't the only one who had that idea. And there are some people who just get off on it. Um, of course, the Scientologists who get involved in this activity are true believers. So they're just kind of living in a bit of a delusional worldview where they see enemies everywhere uh, in people who don't support Scientology. And that's the whole us versus them, black and white thinking, you know, mode of, uh, of thinking. And it doesn't require that you be in a cult in order to think that way. I mean, you guys know that, right? It's not, I mean, there are people out there who are just, they were just raised a certain way or they've had certain life experiences that has convinced them that this is the way they need to be. The world is this way and this way and this way, and there is no other way about it. And such people um, might think that, you know, Scientology is the bee's knees and it's out there saving the world. So how dare these scum like me take on Scientology and they're more than happy to, you know, do whatever. So that's kind of that's kind of how I see it breaking down. And I've seen these people. I've, I've interacted with these people. They are not fun, good, happy people. They are generally um, scummy people. You know, I don't know. I don't know what else to say about it. I mean, it's, you know, they're, they're, that's just how, to, how it is. I wish there were not such people. I wish there was some kind of regulation or something. I wish there was some way to control that. But there really isn't. And, uh, and that's the truth of that. Rebecca Hickman. After reading Dianetics, I am curious about how Scientologists react to injuries. Hubbard wrote that remaining completely silent around injured people is crucial to avoid giving them engrams, but is this advice strictly followed? If someone becomes injured on a Scientology base, in your experience, does everyone become hush? Yep, that's exactly what happens. Everyone in the room shuts up. And if there is, and if it's a big room and it takes a little while for the word to spread, well, that's what happens. And I can give you lots of examples. I mean, I, one time, even on the RPF, okay, this, this Dianetics principle of staying silent during an injury. Okay, first off, let me explain for people who are really like, what? Uh, Hubbard, Hubbard put forward in the book Dianetics, Modern Science, Mental Health, that you have a reactive mind and that the words contained in moments of pain and unconsciousness for you can come back and reflect and uh, sort of repercuss on you later in life in harmful, destructive ways. They can act like hypnotic commands. So if you get bit by a dog, the classic example, and I just give it straight out of the Scientology text so I don't have to bother making up my own, you get bit by a dog and um, the dog, you know, the dog, you got the sound of the dog barking and then biting you, you've got some person who's yelling and screaming, stop, stop, run away, you know, and you're getting bit by this dog, you get blood, you get your pain, you, you know, you're like, ah, and, you, and, and it's all awful, right? So these words that are being said, according to Hubbard, this, no, no, stop, stop, run away, 
These are going into your reactive mind as hypnotic commands. So in the future, should you reapproximate the situation again by, let's say, walking down the same street and maybe hearing a dog bark and maybe that same guy is walking on the other side of the street or you see him in his house or whatever, somehow you approximate the same conditions as that original moment of pain and unconsciousness then those hypnotic commands start replaying on you at a subconscious level from the reactive mind, and you are going to feel like you need to run away. You're going to feel like you need to stop, but you're going to feel like you need to run away too. And and it's going to be weird, and you're going to have these weird ideas in your head because you're not sure where they're coming from. Because again, remember, it's subconscious. You're not walking down the street remembering that this is what's going on. You just suddenly feel weird. And um, this is Hubbard's idea of of why this happens. And um, so in order to avoid any words being used that will, you know, subconsciously go into your reactive mind during these moments of pain and unconsciousness, Scientologists are told, shut up, be quiet, don't say anything when somebody's injured. This is the whole theory behind the silent births, and um, and they take it very seriously. So um, this happened all the time on accidents at job sites when I was working on the RPF or anywhere in the Sea Org and in Scientology in general. Um, and they all take it pretty seriously, right? It's a group cultural belief, and they all pretty much, even if some individuals don't totally buy into it or they're busy doing something else or they don't want to stop and be quiet, they'll, they'll you know, give in to the peer pressure because everybody's pretty stern about this. So that's the deal on that. Adria Vici Alub. The way you ended your episode on the RPF was with a significant personal takeaway. What people could do to you didn't matter anymore because you would survive the worst the Sea Org could throw at you, on paper anyway. Do you find that feeling or perspective or attitude has carried over into the rest of your life since you left Scientology? Um, you know, when you go into a new situation, and seven years ago, me going into this world was a new situation— Uh, It takes a while, you know, this acclimation recovery thing that I keep going on about. So it took me a little while to kind of get my feet, get my bearings, figure out the world and how things work in it and how, you know, kind of awful it can be and figuring out my place in it. And it's still an ongoing thing. So I'm not in a position now where I feel like I can just blow off the world or tell people, you know, rah, but I still care what people think about me and about what my work and what I'm doing here. And it's not a blaze, you know, sort of blase, you know, attitude. I, I, I very much am trying to work here on growing my channel and saying things that the people will agree with or at least find interesting food for thought. Um, but I have learned over the years that uh, universal agreement is a fantasy and, and I'm never going to get everybody to agree with me on pretty much anything. Because there is no such thing as, you know, some principle everybody agrees on. And so I've sort of, you know, had to go from this cult mentality of I'm right, I'm sure, I know the truth, everything I know is real and true, and you need to believe it too. 
you know, that's a that's a real hardcore headspace. And it and it was hard for me to get out of that. It still is. I mean, let's be honest, right? People want to be right and they want to be sure. And that and I'm people. I, I want that those things. And I um I, you know, and I do have strong opinions about things and strong ideas about things. And there's some things I know are factual that other people don't think are factual, and they are, and you know, so you're gonna have a back and forth on that. Um, so I think I've come to a place now where I feel less <sighs> freaked out or concerned or overly concerned about people liking me. I think I've gotten over that part, but I do still, you know, care quite a bit about what people think, and I am still working on that. So as far as, um, you know, as far as that, that same thing within the Scientology world, you know, no, I guess I guess really it hasn't totally blended over into the real world yet where I can just like, I don't care. You know, it's not quite like that for me yet, but I'm working on it. <laughs> I'm a work in progress. And uh, there you go. All right, let's do some flash answers. Jane Smith, what is a Scientologist's diet like? Are some foods off limits? Scientologists have diets as varied and wildly different from one another as everybody else. There is no prescribed diet in Scientology. The only real absolutes in Scientology in terms of what you're putting in your body is during the purification rundown, you have to eat well and you have to take all those mega doses of vitamins and niacin and stuff. Um, But outside of that... Um, the only real restrictions are you can't have any alcohol within 24 hours of an auditing session and you can't have any drugs, period. No illegal substances. Um, and they're pretty frowny face on even legal drugs uh, if some Scientology process or procedure could be used in its place. So that's kind of how that works. Ascari Navarro. Have you ever met or encountered Tommy Davis and his mother, Ann Archer, during your time in Scientology? Also, what are your thoughts in terms of race relations in Scientology? Okay, just little questions. <laughs> no, I have not run into Tommy Davis or Ann Archer directly. I I have been in the same room as Tommy Davis once or twice, but I never really interacted with him, and I never met Ann Archer. And I don't know, race relations in Scientology, as far as a flash answer goes, I've actually discussed this at length earlier. Um, I don't really think race relations is much of a thing in Scientology because Scientologists don't think about other people as their body. And at least I didn't. And I never met a Scientologist who really had a big thing about race. I just didn't. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are Scientologists who have a big thing about race and might be very racist, but I, I never met or interacted with anyone on that level. We just didn't, it, it just wasn't a thing. You know, when you think everybody's a Thetan and their body is just, you know, the equivalent of a splinter in their thumb, I mean, and, and, you, and bodies are a dime a dozen and you've had billions of them, then the whole idea of race and racism just kind of takes a big back seat. No one in Scientology cares about racism. I mean, they don't. I, I, I and what I what I mean by that is care enough to be racist is what I mean. I don't mean that they don't care about racism. But anyway, I, I'm not going to be a Scientology apologist on this. I'm sorry if I'm coming across that way. I'm just trying to be honest about the fact that it just wasn't a thing. Uh, not in my 
world, at least it wasn't. Now, I have also, though, and um, just to add to this uh, and take away from the apologia a little bit, maybe, is uh, at the same time, I can acknowledge that Hubbard himself was a racist, <laughs> you know, and um, at a pretty bad one. He had some, uh, he had some, some pretty racist tendencies, but it didn't, that was surprisingly something that just didn't really bleed over in my Scientology experience. Maybe it did in other people's, and I'm totally fine with them talking about it from their point of view, but for mine, it was nothing. Travis, are you a fan of Steven Seagal? Would you attend the Steven Seagal movie marathon? I used to be. Long, long ago I was when he first appeared on the scene, you know, above the law on that. But then he just started making, you know, these these three-word dime-a-dozen movies that goes now are straight to DVD. And I don't know, Steven Seagal's a little weird. The guy's a weirdo. And he's definitely way, way, way too full of himself. I, I, I believe he's a bit of a narcissist. And uh, regardless of any of that, I did enjoy his earlier movies. And then he just kind of became a but that for me. So... Uh, no, not, would not attend the Steven Seagal movie marathon at this point. Okay, guys, that is our show for this week. Thanks for coming around and listening to me blabber on here. I really do appreciate your viewership and you, you know, letting me into your home once every week or more often, hopefully, with my other content. Um, if you are enjoying my channel, of course, I will put my standard plug in here to please support this channel through Patreon. Or uh, also, there is a PayPal link in the the uh, show description below here on YouTube, and you can use that to uh, send me a one-off if you would like. There is very, very exciting news on the future horizons here on this channel. At least I've got my fingers crossed that there is, because I'm sort of waiting to hear on something, and uh, if so, I will let you guys know about that. Otherwise, um, keep watching for the content, because there will be some really cool stuff coming. All right, guys, talk to you soon. Bye-bye.